This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Bill Botel. Bill is an adjunct professor at the University of New South Wales and is a strategic health policy advisor. He joined me to talk about pandemic politics, the zero COVID strategy under threat in New South Wales, what kind of lockdowns work, vaccination targets, and all things COVID-19 and public health. I am so delighted to be joined by Bill Botel. I last spoke with Bill on the 17th of March 2020, which honestly feels like about three lifetimes ago. And uh, I was saying at the top of the show, that was when the federal government was thinking and edging towards a a strategy that is not the strategy we've been on. It was a strategy uh, they were thinking to follow, which was to open up the economy, to live with the virus and to follow the lead of the UK. Thankfully, we have state premiers and a federation which really stopped that from happening and also public pressure and a number of commentators, including Bill at the time, saying that was a disastrous idea. Clearly it was, as we've seen from all of the evidence around the world that shows that that doesn't work and obviously causes a lot of death and also long-term disease and illness. So I'm joined once again by Bill Botel. He's a strategic health policy advisor and adjunct professor at the University of New South Wales, and we're going to talk all things pandemic politics. Hi there, Bill, and thank you so much for coming back onto the program. Oh, a pleasure, Amy. It does seem like a million lifetimes ago we last spoke. Yes, and so many things that we've learned about this pandemic, this virus, the fact that there are now variants, which wasn't a thing, obviously, in March last year. And also, we didn't really know at the time, given this was a novel coronavirus, we didn't know what the long-term effects might be on a person and their organs and uh, how they might fare after having this disease, whether it be mild or severe. So it seems like there are a lot of things that we've kind of learned since then. There are. And of course, way back in March, uh, the most foolish possible thing that could have been done, not knowing anything at all really about that novel coronavirus at that stage, would have been to let it in and let it run in Australia. And I'm very thankful, really, that the great public health system and the professionals in that, the people, the premiers, the chief ministers, uh, Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, who led the way, uh, all thought the very best idea was uh, not to live with COVID and to keep it out. And uh, after a lot of ups and downs, and particularly in Melbourne, of course, where we had that uh, terrible second wave, but by October 2020, uh, Australia was over COVID. We had achieved and sustained uh, zero COVID, admittedly behind uh, tough borders, but uh, we were on the right track. And from October 2020 until the uh, lax quarantine arrangements at Sydney Airport in mid-June led it into an unvaccinated Australia, we've had a as good an outcome as was possible. No COVID, no almost no COVID, able to suppress it. And of course, uh, people have been able to get on with their lives in freedom and uh, relative prosperity. So it was a big call, but it was the right one back in, uh, in March uh, 2020. Yeah, absolutely. It certainly gave me a lot of faith in science and also in our chief health officers uh, and makes me proud to be a Victorian because here, you know, we are, I don't want to sound boastful given how bad things are in Sydney, um, but it is something that I think we feel can feel quite proud of is that we, you know, have followed the rules here that have been given to us um, in the last two lockdowns we've recently had and quite scarily Delta the variant does seem to be, you know, a new kind of form of coronavirus. It really is so much more infectious. It seems that the airborne nature is just obvious now, given that, you know, Mm. previously we spent months and months in futility debating whether COVID was airborne or not. Mm. And now we are finally, I think, accepting the fact that clearly we can't have so many cases of fleeting transmission without that being a clear uh, thing and and the fact that masks do actually work. So I think it's um, such a relief here in Victoria that we've managed to cross fingers, get on top of our last outbreak that's just happened. And as you referenced, 
difference. It, it does leak across borders and it, um, you know, comes out of hotel quarantine and every state's had its issues. But what are your observations around Victoria's experience? Because we have really had quite a um, a bumpy ride and last year was no cakewalk for Victorians and I'm, I'm sure now New South Wales must be feeling like uh, you're, you're all having a similar experience. Well, I know it's not quite the right time in a pandemic to um, be boastful or proud and that's not what I want to say about Victoria. But Victoria, the Victorian people, the public health system and the government have done something really remarkable in the last year and a half. Firstly, they took an outbreak that was up to 700 a day of the old original COVID, if you like, and squashed it. Not, not just brought it down to some lower level, but over that 15-week period, they got rid of it and they learnt very hard lessons along the way, admittedly, and they had to basically reconstruct the contact tracing and the public health arrangements in Victoria under immense pressure and got rid of it. And then, as we've seen, with, as you say, Delta is, is much more infectious than that variant. And we've, we've had a lot of people who really ought to know better saying, well, you can't do anything about it. You've just got to be fatalistic. You've just got to grow up and learn to live with it and it's going to happen. Yet twice this year, Victoria has now brought a Delta outbreak under control. Now, this, this is not usual in the rest of the world. This is really getting on for almost unique that such a large population can move so swiftly and decisively now to bring even a Delta outbreak under control. I get very amazed, really, at, again, at people who ought to know better that somehow want to conjure up the idea of this virus as being like a zombie attack from outer space <laughs> and you can't do anything about it. But it's just a brainless piece of, of wretched DNA. It conforms to the laws of basic science, physics, chemistry, biology, mathematics. And we know what stops its transmission. In quarantine arrangements, uh, as you say, it, it was uh, by air. So the hotel quarantine arrangements where you have common corridors and ventilation systems barely struggled to maintain... Uh, keep uh, the old Delta, uh, the old variant out, the original variant, but was pretty ineffective against Delta, except the Howard Springs arrangements where you are in a cabin and you have open air between the cabins. Delta never got out of that. So, I mean, really, I mean, we got on top of Delta that way. Yet for a year and a half, the federal government and many of the state governments wanted this to put Howard Springs arrangements at or around the various uh, capital city airports. If we'd done that, I doubt we would have had the terrible uh, escape uh, through uh, Sydney Airport in mid-June, which has precipitated this whole uh, fiasco now in New South Wales. So, you know, the, the virus doesn't have any brains, and we do. I mean, I think if the virus did have brains, we'd be toast, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> if, it was, if, it was, if it was as smart as your average tadpole, I don't know that we'd uh, still all be here. But thankfully, it doesn't. But I think Victoria uh, and the Premier and, and the way in which Victorians mobilised really are a guiding light and beacon to uh, all the rest of us. And it's just a great pity that those lessons don't seem to have crossed the Murray into New South Wales. And you know, I think the rest of Australia's got to really think very hard now about where we're going with this whether we want to throw away the great achievement we've had of zero COVID in the idea that uh, we get to some vaccination rate and then we just throw open the borders when we know that this thing is deteriorating now by the day in the rest of the world. It's not going in the direction we all hoped. So, uh, I, I, again, I think what Victoria has achieved uh, and the other states and territories... Uh, but particularly Victoria under terrible circumstances last year, is something we should really look hard on and I think should be the model precautionary, sensible, tough about how we proceed now in the next uh, weeks and months.
And I certainly think that watching the debate and conversation play out about this particular situation here in Australia, particularly between Victoria and New South Wales, we've seen a little bit of tension about this because we've had the so-called Victorian side saying you need to lock down hard, go into stage four restrictions, um, and people were calling for this as soon as there was a case in New South Wales. And we saw ongoing calls when the lockdown wasn't announced and we were expecting surely it'll be today. What is the tipping point for the New South Wales government announcing a lockdown? And some in New South Wales I've seen, you know, may have taken it personally, I think, and perhaps misread what I think Victorians here were trying to say, which was we learnt some really hard lessons last year, as you said, and uh, we don't want to make them again ourselves. And we just absolutely would hate to see something so terrible happen to another state. And I think that's why we're so worried about New South yeah, Wales is because we don't want you to be in lockdown for four months or something like that. And, and yeah, nor do the people of New South Wales. I mean, everybody in New South Wales, I think the great mass of the people are fine with zero COVID and they expected the government to move swiftly the moment they figured out what had happened at Sydney Airport. I don't believe for a moment that the people of New South Wales want to be any different to the people of the rest of Australia and New Zealand in not living with COVID and particularly not living with COVID Delta. And I think people were quite astonished that it took 10 days before the New South Wales government reluctantly moved into what was a very ineffective set of lockdown arrangements and then waited and watched to see how bad it got. Uh, and, of course, with Delta, uh, it just uh, infects uh, you know, six, eight, nine, ten people for every person that's infected. It is really infectious and it moves very fast. I don't, there's no doubt about that. So that if somebody's got uh, Delta and they go into the, into the family, go home, almost certainly everybody else in that family group will be infected. And that wasn't the case with the original COVID um, outbreak we had last year. Uh, so I don't think the people of New South Wales want anything, wanted anything other than swift action so that within, let's say, the first four, four weeks or so, we would have followed the trajectory that Victoria had. And let's hope that is happening now in, in Queensland, where I think they waited uh, one or two days uh, and they just had a mere handful of cases that were detected uh, out of Indooroopilly High School, and then they move very swiftly, and it would seem that that will that will bring it under control quickly. But what's really happening in New South Wales is you have a group of people within the government and uh, and some uh, misguided uh, other lobby groups and uh, federally that says um, we have to learn to live with it, and the way out of this is by vaccination, and you get to some vaccination coverage rate, and then we do. Uh, the same thing that uh, the Boris Johnson government has done in the United Kingdom, uh, declare a Freedom Day, open up the borders, learn to live with endemic COVID and everything that goes with it. And uh, that's a really great achievement and an improvement on the situation we have now. Well, I don't think the Australian people think that at all. No, it strikes me as odd that anyone would think there is an appetite for that within any state in Australia, uh, because it, yeah. it just doesn't seem to have been at all for throughout the entire pandemic period. Well, you can have that point of view, I guess, right? You can say, well, we can't do anything about it. We've got to learn to live with it. It's very important that I can travel to um, the south of France or to uh, Disneyland or whatever, and that's a really important thing to do. But if you believe that, then the democratic and proper thing to do is to put both the credit side, that is opening up, and all the debits, that is the effect on jobs, health, caseloads, infections, deaths, put all of that on the debit side. Uh, the projections for these things exist. The modelling exists. Uh, what will be the downside effects of doing this? And then take it to the people and take it to the parliaments and say, we're going to make a change that will affect everybody in this country forever. There's no way back from this. And if we're going to do that, this is what you need to know and we want your approval or disapproval, which I think it would be, by putting all of this information out there honestly and openly and having a process by which I think the parliaments uh, can sign off on it and the people can approve it if they wish to, knowing with eyes wide open what we're 
being sold. Now, there's none of that happening. This modelling, the, the downsides of it are not being put before the Australian people or the Australian Parliament. And I think if we've learned anything in the course of this pandemic uh, in Australia over, and New Zealand over the last year and a half, it's that whenever there is secrecy or cabinet in confidence or things being cooked up behind closed doors, almost certainly uh, it's being done without debate and scrutiny. And I think you mentioned the one particular thing that was critical last year, which was this intense refusal to accept that COVID spread in the air. And, and still, there are advisers to the federal government who maintain that airborne spread is not a big deal. Well, <laughs> what does one say? The science and evidence is, undermines that completely. It's not a debate anymore, yet it still seems to be uh, a live issue as the federal government makes its policies. So I'm all in favour of openness, transparency, scrutiny, the only way to build trust of the people. And I think it's pretty fair to say that the trust of the people in some of these policy objectives and settings uh, being put together by the federal government is really lacking. Yeah. Well, coming from Victoria and, and watching our press conferences every day, what does strike you in this pandemic is that the amount of transparency and openness that's required to garner trust to actually have people buy into sure. the rules and the measures that you're asking them to do is actually really really huge. You really do need to tell everyone everything, um, be open yeah. to journalists criticising you. We've seen yeah. that, you know, our contact tracers commanders coming out and we literally know every single case and where that was linked and, you know, who knew who and where they sat in a stadium. And, you know, we go into all of that kind of epidemiological data and, and detail. Yeah. What I guess is kind of striking when you watch the communication style of the, the New South Wales government, for example, at their press conferences, even in those early days, is that there really wasn't a lot of detail around the outbreak and what actually was happening. Um, and also, there wasn't a lot of clarity around the rules either when, when any rules were first instituted. So I wonder if you could talk about the communication style and what is actually needed in your mind. You know, it was clearly needed before when things were at a low level, but at this point in time, we are seeing ministers come out to say, oh, well, there's a whole group of people who, you know, English is not their first language and, oh, you know, they're from other countries and they don't trust the governments. And, you know, there's a lot of things being thrown around that I don't think are particularly helpful in establishing trust. Mm, so mm, I was interested in your insights and thoughts in that and the, the strategy that's being taken at the moment and, you know, whether you think that's hampering the efforts in New South Wales, given that you are on the ground there and obviously an expert in this field. Well, uh, I've been around this sort of business uh, from the days of HIV and AIDS uh, almost 40 years ago. And uh, I worked then for uh, Dr. Blewett, who is the health minister and uh, uh, through him with a lot of the uh, politicians of the day and uh, the scientists and so on and people like Ida Buttrose and things. And what I saw that in them then and what's lacking now uh, is humility. Uh, I think you're quite right about Victoria. They put, out, put it all out there. They say what they know and what they don't know and they answer every question. They don't rely on uh, focus groups and uh, spin and all the rest of it just openly and honestly say what we know and what we don't know. It worked in the HIV days and, and it works now. Unfortunately, in New South Wales, what we're seeing a lot of is um, uh, ministers and premiers coming out and uh, blaming people for being coming infected effectively. So say, so, well, my goodness, the people there who are getting infected, as you say, they don't speak English, they don't seem to understand, they're not doing the right thing. And there's a lot of... Uh, blaming going on when, in fact, if people don't understand what to do and why and what's going on, it's right at the, at the feet of the government and its communications and its outreach and its ability to uh, bring the public along with them. Nothing can be perfectly done under these circumstances, and it's wrong to criticise uh, every little thing that goes wrong. But in principle, you need to bring the community along with you. And if that's not happening, it's because it's not 
being done well enough at the heart of the government. Now, I don't think that's been the case in most of the rest of Australia, and I don't think it's been the case in Victoria. After a lot of uh, ups and downs, as we said before, I think there's real been real community mobilisation in Victoria and elsewhere in the country so that the community is fully across what needs to happen and why, and not just the community in one part of Sydney, but I mean all the communities in Sydney. Mm. Uh, and the, the, the way we see how that's going, of course, is are the daily infection rates going in the right direction or the wrong direction? If they're going in the wrong direction, it's because of the decisions made and not made by the government of New South Wales. It's not the community's fault. It's the upward uh, direction of the caseload reflects on the failure of policies adopted by the New South Wales government. So it's that simple. That's where the responsibility rests. Yeah, uh, there's not just blaming of the community, which obviously is unfair and completely not appropriate and um, and certainly unhelpful. But there's also, I guess, it seems to be there's a little bit of pushing and pulling between the actual uh, health advisors, the people within New South Wales Health who are public servants, and then yeah. uh, the government itself. Uh, and clearly, as we've noticed with ATAGI and the federal government, ATAGI are an advisory body. They're not elected. Um, the government can decide whether to accept or reject ATAGI's advice on vaccination and AstraZeneca. Similarly, here uh, in Victoria and New South Wales, you know, we have chief health officers. Um, they're not elected representatives. It's the government who decides what to do with those, that information and that advice. We did see uh, the health minister from New South Wales on Insiders on the weekend, and there was a really kind of interesting uh, exchange going on around the health advice on lockdowns and and you know how the New South Wales government responds to health advice and if they take it straight away and there did seem to be a bit of hesitancy around uh, answering the question as there seems mm. to be a, a number of times at the press conferences and I was just interested in what seems to be and also I've noticed a lot of public health people also make this comment that there seems to be a bit of tension or rising tension between public health advice and science uh, and the New South Wales government even playing out at press conferences and in interviews. Hmm. Well, uh, that's right. Everybody, uh, the problem stems from a lack of willingness to own up to a changing strategic goal. As long as the goal of governments, the political goal of governments reflected the absolutely uh, widespread view of the people that we had to have COVID zero, that is no local cases, and if we had them to, clobber them very fast. If we had that shared strategic goal, uh, that was certainly the goal of the public health systems in New South Wales and everywhere else in the, in the country. So the political goal was clear, maintain COVID zero. If there is an outbreak, move swiftly, contain it, and do all the necessary things on quarantine and health orders and so on that are required to bring about that situation. What's really happened in New South Wales is that over months, there has been a very stealthy redefinition of the strategic goal. Uh, and the goal of the government, uh, to judge by its actions, not by its words, but by its actions, has been to live with COVID, to believe that there is a level of COVID delta that is inevitable and will be ineradicable and that people have just got to get used to it. Now, this was done without <clears throat> telling New South Wales people what they're up to, and it was certainly done without the approval of the people of the parliament, and I think it's a pretty fair bet that it was done disregarding the advice of the very excellent New South Wales public health system in general. What happened in between? between the various personalities, I have no way of knowing. But when you change that strategic goal, of course, then you get confusion. Mm -hmm. And I think we saw with the ministers, when they're asked about this by journalists, they hedge and cavil and they don't completely want to own up to it because they know that it's deeply unpopular. And, and the health people know, of course, that it's basically unsustainable, that uh, the effects in New South Wales now of this change of direction, and we're now in the seventh week 
of the lockdown and uh, the caseloads are going in the wrong direction. The effect is being felt in our public hospital systems. Elective surgery has been cancelled broadly. Uh, the wards are filling up uh, with COVID Delta patients. We've had terrible cases where uh, people have died in their beds, I think thinking that they had the sniffles or a cold, they weren't sure of what had happened and then they're engulfed by COVID and one family member has died. That's the first time that system has got to know that that's happened. And then all the people who are in that family, of course, are now in the wards with COVID. So right at the front line, the consequences of deciding to live with COVID and having a public health system that was completely unprepared for this change of direction is going to be felt by the doctors, the nurses, the ambulance workers, the patients, the people in the hospitals uh, as these wards, you know, fill up. So these have, this has tremendous consequences. And I think the New South Wales government should be rightly criticised for making this change in policy direction, but without the involvement or approval of the community or the public health system, and I can't imagine it's with the approval of the people uh, in the New South Wales public health system to bring about this change in a population that, as we know, in mid-June was largely unvaccinated, had no defence against Delta, and is not that much more vaccinated even today, and certainly not evenly spread across metropolitan Sydney. Uh, the vaccination rates by postcode, which are absolutely pivotal information required by the public health system and the people to understand what's happening, that information is kept secret. That's not known. And, of course, in greater metropolitan Sydney, there would be areas and in the more affluent suburbs where the vaccination rates would be very high relative to other suburbs in the west and southwest of Sydney where the vaccination rates even today would be very low. And we know with Delta what happens. Unvaccinated people, if they get it, they're in a lot of trouble. They're in a lot of trouble. And yes, and all ages, aren't they? Especially all, all ages, ages and, and, and perfectly healthy people, yeah. Yeah, so Delta in many ways, I'm not a doctor or a scientist, but... Uh, great epidemiological friends, they say it's almost like another virus altogether. Uh, effectively, we've got a new situation on our hands. It's not just a slight worsening of the situation we had with the strains we had last year, but to all intents and purposes is a, is a new threat. And it means that we've got to deal with it in a new way. So it's like a terrible game of snakes and ladders. You think you're getting somewhere up a few ladders and then you land on a snake and you go right back to uh, zero again, where we were when you and I last spoke sometime in March uh, last year. It reminds me also that we did see Delta running rampant in India, of course, and this was in the news and headlines and it was mm. clearly a really serious situation. They were even having mass outbreaks of black fungus, which is not a common thing to occur. Um, no. And and so the federal government actually banned Australians from coming back to Australia from India because of the Delta variant. So mm. the fact that we took such extreme measures against our own citizens and then when Delta did actually arrive here, that uh, we didn't really give it the due respect that it required is, I guess, still staggering to me. I probably won't uh, get past well, that <laughs> ever. You're quite right. Delta started emerging towards the end of 2020. Mm. So Delta didn't come out of nowhere. And as you quite rightly say, in early 2021, it created havoc in India to the extent that, as you say, the flights uh, uh, were stopped and so on. But nothing was done to upgrade the quarantine arrangements. So the flights were stopped because the hotel quarantine arrangements obviously were transmitting Delta. Okay. But where was the action to upgrade the quarantine? The simple things to create Howard Springs equivalent facilities all around uh, the major capital city airports wasn't done. Nothing was done. I, it's quite it's quite remarkable, and you know even at very basic levels, you could have had a field of caravans 
or cabins that you could have bought from a hardware shop if you really wanted to. I mean, it wasn't, it's not a great problem in terms of building these facilities. They've got to be done properly, of course, and so on. Yeah. But it was always there to do, and it could have been done within weeks and months in early 2021, and we would have been that much better off against what was clearly happening with Delta uh, as it spread around the world. But there was no action. And, of course, uh, in New South Wales, the health orders were not upgraded at all. So the immediate cause of the problem we had in New South Wales was a limousine driver who, under the health orders, was allowed to be unvaccinated. Whether he's wearing a mask or not, we don't know, but was was a frontline health worker, basically, dealing with airline crew who were infected with Delta, and then it got out. Mm. So the there was just a really... A, highly consequential failure to act on quarantine. And then we know, of course, we're six months behind where we ought to have been with vaccinating people at all. So this all came to the inevitable conclusion, I regret to say, in the middle of June. And now in a larger city, the larger state, uh, we are wearing the consequences of those failures of public policy. And that's going to have impact over all the country whether it's economic or health-wise, but socially as well. People people are not able <laughs> to enjoy the freedoms we had as recently as mid-June of travel. And I understand the problems about international travel, but a lot of people are not able to travel around to see friends and family and all the sorts of events, weddings and funerals and um, illnesses and so on domestically within Australia. And there is no way, it seems to me, that this is going to be resolved at all in the foreseeable future if the New South Wales government maintains the present settings and the federal government decides that um, uh, the sooner we open up uh, to Delta, the better. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to pick up on something that you you mentioned earlier around um, the strategy and changing the strategy and, and that causing confusion and the underlying uh, kind of ideology that that's underpinning this strategy, which seems to be about personal responsibility and individual responsibility for this outbreak, because we are seeing these messages every day to say, well, you can now get AstraZeneca, go get vaccinated. Anyone, you know, over 16 can get vaccinated. We've got plenty of supply, even though many people have pointed out, even as of yesterday, that they couldn't get uh, an appointment even for AstraZeneca in uh, GP clinics or the state hubs um, if they were under that age where it's um, something you have to consent to in an informed way. And we've also seen that language around, well, it's your responsibility to follow the rules. If we just follow the same rules that we've been using, uh, then you know we'll get out of this, but it's up to you. You can decide whether we get out of this. Uh, you just need to go get vaccinated and you just need to make sure you don't get COVID. Uh, mm. Well, obviously, that's not really very helpful. It's not quite realistic either. And I wanted to pick up on something you've been tweeting about and others have been modelling, which is this idea that vaccination will somehow magically give New South Wales freedoms. And if they just get to 50% of the eligible adult population vaccinated, we can give you some, you know, little freedoms. You might be able to go to a cafe or maybe uh, we'll let you get your hair cut. No one even knows what these freedoms would be because they won't tell people. But we've seen modelling and you've seen modelling around vaccination and just what kind of effect it would have. Our chief health officer here in Victoria has said it's a medium-term and long-term solution. It's not a short-term solution. And this modelling appears to suggest that even starting vaccination now, even if we actually had the supply to give people the vaccines that most aren't hesitant to take, that this effect on lockdown and, and also on cases would be in the months, in, you know, two months' time, not in the uh, immediate time now and we're already in over 200 cases per day. So could you talk with us about that? Because I think a lot of people are taking that message on, not really understanding the role of vaccination and the fact that this isn't really a realistic goal. Of course, everyone should absolutely get vaccinated as soon as they can. But some of this is not within people's control, even when they're trying to get vaccinated. And it isn't a golden ticket. What we're seeing now uh, with some with the federal and New South Wales government is derived pretty much from uh, the United Kingdom government 
which is a hardline libertarian government. And libertarianism, as we've seen in the United Kingdom and the United States under the previous president, is just not compatible with the protection of public health. There is no free market way in which this can work. And uh, these uh, ideas about uh, a cafe and a gym opening up is an expression of what they call nudge theory, which uh, underpins a lot of this uh, libertarian ideology. So that nobody actually says do this or do that, and of course thereby takes responsibility for bringing an outbreak under control, it's a variation of blaming the people. Oh, well, you didn't get the vaccine, that's your responsibility. You got sick, that's your responsibility. We're not bothered. It's nothing to do with us. We just said, take it or leave it. Well, uh, unfortunately, that has had that approach in Brazil. The United States and the United Kingdom has killed literally millions of people. It is a way of the the governments of those countries, and, and I regret to think here in some governments, of avoiding responsibility for outcomes and saying that the people are responsible. Now, we don't do that in relation to um, drink driving. Long ago, we gave up the idea that you could drink as many spooners as you want and then go out and uh, drive all your mates uh, 20 kilometres down the road to attend a football match. There's no nudge theory involved with that. The law is put there to say you can't drink and drive or you've got to wear seatbelts and a whole range of interventions uh, that have worked extremely well. Uh, You can't smoke in restaurants. All of these are public health interventions that have had remarkable effects on the health of the Australian people and have been pretty cheap to impose. So the idea that in the middle of a global pandemic that is killing millions, that's going wrong, that this is a, a fine time to deploy effectively intellectually bankrupt ideas like nudge theory or to pick and choose between vaccines, which, of course, we only have a small choice between AstraZeneca and Pfizer because the federal government refused in the middle of last year to diminish risk by multiplying the options of vaccines that were on offer then, particularly Pfizer and Moderna. So we've got a constricted supply of vaccines for the reasons we all know AstraZeneca is not uh, held to be a good choice, regrettably, by the Australian people for all the reasons we know. But if you can't get it, it's of no use. Then there are other caveats put into this argument about percentage of eligible population. Well, declaring an eligible population number is a political decision. The only number that really counts is the percentage of the entire population vaccinated. And it would seem Mm. to me now that would be uh, children from kids from above 12. And it's not being offered a vaccine that counts, it's whether that vaccine, vaccine is actually in somebody's arm that actually moves it. And the Victorian health officer, as you say, is completely right. The solution, the vaccine solution is measured in effect in weeks to months to years. What happens to a population that's fully vaccinated will become apparent in months to years. The crisis in New South Wales is what we do in hours and days. So there can be no vaccinate your way out of the problem in New South Wales consistent with returning to zero COVID in the community. It can't be done. I mean, it takes two weeks from when you're vaccinated the first time for the effect to really kick in and then you've got to wait for the second shot and it takes more weeks after that. So uh, whatever you do with vaccination can't affect the trajectory of what's happening with Delta in Sydney in the next hours and days. It just doesn't work that way. The only thing that can affect that is by having hard and fast and understandable rules about restricting movement. Uh, And if you restrict movement, you restrict the virus. And that's obviously what's worked well in Victoria and South Australia and hopefully well in Queensland. And that brings it under control and clobbers Delta, puts it back to zero uh, in the shortest possible time. Well, that's not what is happening in New South Wales now. This has gone on since mid-June. There is no clear way out. There's a great deal of confusion about the lockdown of arrangements or the restriction arrangements over the state and within greater metropolitan Sydney. 
uh, well, the virus just doesn't understand the local government boundaries of greater metropolitan Sydney. Uh, it doesn't understand uh, political statements and press conferences. All it understands is whether it can move with somebody uh, and infect six or eight more people. Uh, if you want to stop that happening, you have to stop people moving and bring it under control. And that's not what is happening by their actions in New South Wales. And the consequences of that are very serious, but unquantifiable and unknown. All I know is that the numbers of people in hospital, in ICU, on ventilation and uh, regrettably dying are increasing when they should be going down. I mean, I actually tried to read the rules um, and I even followed the Guardian's more easily understandable rules mm. and I found it really confusing. And if I it find is. it confusing, I'm sure a lot of others do because I've been following this quite a lot um, and in quite a lot of depth. And, I mean, there is a, there's one tier of rules for the Greater Sydney area that is in lockdown in general. There's another set of rules or in more intense rules for people in southwest and western Sydney in those eight LGAs or local government areas. Uh, and then there are other rules that are kind of just general light restrictions across the rest of the state um, that is not in lockdown. I mean, this does seem to not be something that's conducive to people being able to comply. We're seeing the military brought in to support the police to, you know, ensure compliance with these rules. But there's also, I think, confusion as to whether these rules are sufficient as well, because we have seen similar rules in place for quite a while now. They have been um, tightened in recent weeks. We still don't see the effect yet of that tightening. But I just wonder when we're looking into the future and, and New South Wales, uh, sorry, not New South Wales, because the whole state isn't in lockdown, but the greater Sydney area that is in lockdown, you know, they're going to be in lockdown, you included, for the next month. So up until the end of August. If people in the community are, are confused about the rules and also if we're not quite sure that they're enough based on the modelling, what is the next step forward uh, in an ideal sense? If we're taking politics out of it, if we're taking neoliberal ideology out of it, what actually is a step that's been proven or could be proven to work so that people have a, a real light at the end of the tunnel? The only thing that works is what's being done in the rest of Australia and New Zealand. A commitment, a clear commitment to zero COVID in the community and at least until almost everybody is vaccinated. That's the only thing that works because you're quite right. The confusion, the lack of clarity, the drawing of lines on a map as if that matters to the COVID virus and Delta just cannot do it. It increases the transmission risks and rates and that's exactly how it's being played out in Sydney. Uh, for example, in Melbourne, Everybody knows that uh, wearing masks outdoors is a very important thing that really helped uh, reduce transmission rates and bring it under control. That's not been mandated in greater metropolitan Sydney, but it's being mandated in the eight local government areas. So you're in a very odd position that if you're on one side of the street in one local government area, you've got to wear masks outdoors. And if you cross the other, across the street to the next local government area where that wasn't the order you could take the mask off. Well, you've only got to say say it to realise how basically silly it is because the virus just spreads and it's got you've got to wear masks outdoors. I think that's completely clear and that's what's worked in Victoria. So you have a whole hodgepodge of rules, regulations. They change every day. There is no, uh, as you'd say, a ring of steel around greater metropolitan Sydney. So people are moving from the edge of metropolitan Sydney into the regions and that was the reason that the Victorian government quite rightly said that they would suspend the bubble arrangements with communities and uh, local government areas that bordered the Murray River because people were coming back and forth across the Victoria-New South Wales border. But if there was no ring of steel around Sydney, how could the Victorian government be assured that COVID Delta hadn't by misadventure ended up right on the borders of the Murray River and was going to come across into Victoria. So the consequences are really severe, not just for health, but for economic livelihood and jobs uh, all through New South Wales and particularly in the border regions uh, where these new state arrangements have had to be reimposed. So we have confusion. We don't have a commitment to restoring COVID zero. We have a vaccination 
rollout in Sydney that's very different across the greater metropolitan area where the governments will not tell us how many vaccines are being now deployed by postcode and what the vaccination rates are and really no end in sight. Uh, There is a a date by the August the 31st, but really there's no uh, commitment to that date making any difference. All we can see is that this just goes on and on until people are supposed to get used to the idea of living with COVID. Now, I don't think that's on the basis of epidemiological and scientific and the best advice. That's a very bright idea at all. But I also object to it as a citizen of New South Wales and Australia that uh, this has not been dealt with openly and honestly and approved by the parliaments and by the people. If we're going to make these changes and they're going to have such big consequences and they're irrevocable and ineradicable once they're in, then I think in a democracy we should be asked to consider it all and approve it or reject it on the basis of science and evidence. I don't think what's happening in New South Wales is is uh, good democratic practice and I don't think, based on the advice I get, that it's a very good epidemiological or pandemic practice either. Mm. And Bill, just finally, when we're looking at the federal government, obviously their failures have been throughout this conversation because Mm. clearly they have responsibility for the vaccine rollout, for getting supply, for buying and purchasing vaccines, and also, of course, hotel quarantine and managing our borders, for example. So, you know, we have been very familiar with what the effects are of the federal government, you know, dragging its heels, not calling, you know, the head of Pfizer. Instead, Kevin Rudd, you know, gets in there and calls him. I mean, these are very stark failures and we are now seeing those consequences. But we had seen on Friday after National Cabinet, the Prime Minister come out, give a very long press conference, trumpeting these new um, figures for vaccination targets. Finally, we actually have targets again that they will be tied to phases, which will lead to, you know, very slow opening up. It will also mean there'll be less rules and less lockdowns, supposedly. So I wondered when you were looking at that press conference and, and seeing the messaging coming from the federal government about this new world where we're going to reach um, 70% of the eligible adult population vaccinated and also then eventually 80% of the eligible adult population vaccinated. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? because I was interested to read from Mary Louise McLaws, who we speak to on this program, that those thresholds actually equate to 56% and 64% of the total population uh, being vaccinated. That, to me, doesn't seem to be enough. And you did mention earlier on this idea that, well, children need to be included uh, and we need to have a much higher goal for vaccination. So could you comment on the developments coming out of National Cabinet and from the federal government recently and, and what your thoughts are about whether that's the right direction? Well, I think that to tie it to any arbitrary figure like 70 and make people concentrate on that and saying, well, if you get to 70, that's the magic figure has this completely the wrong way about. We're now in a situation where even in highly vaccinated places, much more vaccinated than Australia, Delta is being is resurgent. It's happening in, I just know the other day, another hour actually in San Francisco, where they're 80% vaccinated in the city, they're reintroducing restrictions. Uh, Florida is effectively out of control where they've had a libertarian government said, what's the problem? Well, they're getting up to 26, 30,000 cases a day, and they may have to look at restrictions. It's sweeping through unvaccinated populations. So if we open up at not seven, at this 70% of eligible people offered a vaccine is just a political figure. The real figure of 70 is a lot lower. Mm. If you open up in a resurging delta and allow it to come in, Clearly, there will be very serious effects for the unvaccinated. We know that Delta can be transmitted by people who are fully vaccinated, that is to unvaccinated people in their families or the people they come in contact with. So we are importing almost certainly a rising caseload with all the things that go along with that. Well, I would like to see the National Cabinet and the Government of Australia put out fairly and squarely what 
the consequences will be because that won't be freedom, that will be chaos. We've had the freedoms without Delta since last October to mid-June. We had a, even it seems a bit funny to say it, we had a long golden summer free of COVID. That was mm. pretty good. They it were was. genuine freedoms. That, amount, that allowed me personally, I went to New Zealand and saw my friends in Melbourne and, um, and uh, in Tasmania, and it was pretty good. And uh, I was, I think that was great. I think the people of Australia really wanted that to be maintained and then only to move the most prudently and cautiously. I, can, I think whenever you're told that there is a new deal you've got to accept and it's, you've got to accept it within the next few weeks or else and an artificial deadline is put on it, whether it's buying a car or buying a house or you know, buying a bridge or anything, I think people are wise just to say, hang on, what's the rush? Why? Um, why am I now fixated on a figure of 60 70 80%? What else happens if I accept that deal? And that's what I think the people of Australia have every right to demand and expect of the federal government, of the national cabinet, and saying, right, there's a possible upside, maybe, in terms of travel, but there's a lot of other stuff attached to that, and we want to see that. You put it out there, you prove it, you verify it, you debate it, and we will decide whether we accept it. That's how I think it ought to happen from now on, because the consequences of just falling for some figure, dictated effectively by uh, a political agenda, with a lot of downside consequences that we can see now happening all over the world and in the United States and the United Kingdom and Europe, I think we should just say, hold your horses, you prove it. Uh, it's up to you to convince us yeah. of what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Bill, it's just been so illuminating again to speak with you and really timely because we are at that crunch point, you've pointed out really, uh, where there is this underlying move away from zero COVID in New South Wales uh, and that we need to make sure that uh, people have their eyes wide open to what the consequences are if that strategy is pursued in full and, and to know, you know, really what people are saying when they're doing something differently and how to, to reconcile that conflict. So I really appreciate you uh, explaining all of this to us and sharing with us the strategic points here and the political points and scientific points, and uh, I'm really grateful um, to you. No, well, well, thank you very much for inviting me, and I really hope that we're not doing this again in 12 months' time. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. It would be, yeah, be nice to be talking about something else altogether. But anyway, oh, thank you so much for inviting me on. Thank you. A pleasure, and I hope that lockdown isn't too long for you and uh, everyone here in Victoria is crossing our fingers for you. Thank you. Thank you. I've just been speaking with adjunct professor Bill Botel. He's based at the University of New South Wales and is a strategic health policy advisor. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.